Welcome to What a Scream, the horror movie podcast where I, your host, Ugrain, chats with a guest about horror films. And we talk about two films that have to do with um, a topic or subject that I have previously randomly chosen. This week, however, um, my guest approached me with a topic that they would like to cover. I think I'm getting soft in my old age. I'm allowing my guests to pick the topics now. Um, And so... This guest today is Niall Kitson, and the topic that he approached me with was uh, David Cronenberg literary adaptations. Um, I'm not going to lie, Cronenberg in general is quite a blind spot for me. Obviously, I've covered Shivers, and I'm a big fan of The Fly, um, but I feel like I have yet to delve into him as a director. So I'm. this episode was kind of a continuation of my education. Um, <laughs> I guess what a bunch of movies to continue that education with. Um, again, not going to lie, these films, they definitely left me with like, if I was a cartoon character, there would be a question mark above my head. Um, but sure, look, anyway, let's get into it. So we cover... <sighs> 1996's Crash, um, which is based on the J.G. Ballard novel from 1973. And then we chatted, well, attempted to chat, I think is the right way of putting it. Um, We attempted to chat about Naked Lunch from 1991, which is an adaptation of um, a William S. Burroughs novel from 1959. Um, So... (laughs) let's let's get into it these films are so bizarre um yeah (laughs) enjoy this chat about these david cronenberg's literary adaptations so i would like to welcome to the podcast niall kitson how are you not too bad Egrain. how are you doing i'm very well thank you um feeling slightly what's the word slightly wary about today's films I think we've got a lot to discuss um yeah but before we get into that would you like to introduce yourself to listeners and let them know who you are and what you do sure uh my name is Niall Kitson I'm a journalist I'm a technology journalist uh which is pretty important uh given the films that we're talking about today Uh, I'm also a podcaster and co-host of tech radio and uh that's kind of my bona fides there I'm also a lifelong horror fan um and one-time contributor to both Film Ireland and the Irish Journal of Gothic and Horror Studies. Uh, and if you're particularly um, uh, astute, you might find some of my fiction uh, out there online and in print as well. We met at um, Octacon, which is a convention here in Ireland that kind of focuses on sci-fi. And we met doing Gothic horror panel, which was very interesting, I must say. It was. It was a lot of fun. It was. Uh, I learned a lot. It's nice being on panels that you actually learn something from as well. It is. And you don't know who you're on a panel with. So um, we were kind of lucky that we had a few minutes beforehand. Just go, That's who you are. Okay. <laughs> what, what are you going to talk about? Okay. Yeah. We have a plan. 
we won't have any dead air it's cool exactly yeah um so how did you get into horror and do you remember what the first horror film was you ever saw horror has always just kind of been there for me um my first horror film that I saw was actually Zombie Flesh Eaters. Oh, and wow. there was a particular moment in Zombie Flesh Eaters because my um my uncle owned a pub down in Limerick and they had this exotic thing called a video player and they used to just loop films on it. And I I don't think they were terribly concerned about what films were actually on, but I know he was a horror fan because it, he had a copy of an American werewolf in London at home uh, that I, you know, knew by the cover wasn't for, you know, six year old Nile kind of a thing. But the first film that I saw on video happened to be a horror film, happened to be Zombie Flesh Eaters. And the first moments from Zombie Flesh Eaters I saw was the famous eye gouging scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I saw that and I went, OK, not only am I done with video as a medium, I'm done with horror. That's it. I I will see you in adolescence, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and that is uh, that that was sort of my first horror film moment. But of course, you come back to these things later, later on. You see Jaws, and uh, you know it's something that ostensibly is is suitable for you when I kind of know that it isn't. Um, and then when I got into sort of my teenage years, you start getting the classics. You get the Romero zombie films. You get Evil Dead too. You get whatever you can get your hands on, really, because when you had a uh, a video library, you could just go in and have a wander. And because there are still movie shows on MTV with, you know, actual reviews uh, and there was one show called The Big Picture, which was a movie review show. But at the end, they had a five minute slot called a cult corner where they would talk about what we regard now as, you know, kind of the the those subversive classics everything out there from a razor head to pink flamingos to uh to i suppose naked lunch and crash would actually sit quite quite happily in that Mm. category so that was kind of my my trajectory with horror you know it started out as you know being something to be petrified of and then just gradually became a part of what i like to watch it's part of my regular diet Mm, yeah i have like a similar i had that childhood thing of watching zombie um flesh eaters as well it's really funny it must have been on channel four must have been at you know parents party and us kids were just shoved in front of the tvs and i remember seeing that i seen as a young child as well and i have a similar story about uh suspiria as well and it's so funny how like it was so terrifying at the time but it almost like morbidly piqued my curiosity and it was very much like i'm petrified of this but i also want to know more <laughs> mm. so yeah it's- it's, I, I feel like stuff like VHSs, but also Channel 4 has a lot to answer for when it comes to this kind of childhood memory. <laughs> Definitely. And when the guys who set up Channel 4 uh, did so, they were given carte blanche and you know, guys would come into meetings and go, Do you know what? I saw this wonderful film, but, you know, there's no way wherever it's ever going to get shown on TV. And the attitude was, well, why wouldn't it? We've got a channel. We can put this stuff out. You know, we can we can show Ken Russell films. We can show Ken Loach, show whoever we want. Uh, This is our channel. And unfortunately, it's something that I think we really miss in the Internet age. You know, you really get locked into these sort of bubbles or silos or you, you only listen to a small number of influencers who are talking about 
as far as we're concerned, already the films that we grew up with, you know, where what's the challenge now? You know, how do you get out there and find new stuff? Um, you're surrounded by horror movies all the time. So I, I imagine, you know, you're you're one of the arbiters now. You you get to um send the ladder down. Mm, yeah, that is quite a nice like thought because yeah, you're right. Like, especially in this day and age, we've got influence. Like I'd be on TikTok and I see all these kind of like Gen Zers and they're like, you know this really unknown underrated film and it's something like the exorcist and you're just like mm. really <laughs> really <Yeah. laughs> so it's nice to kind of like even when i'm talking to my friends like this is really fun i was like at a kid's birthday the other day and it was like a group of mums and they were like oh you know horror's just gore and blood and i was like well actually <laughs> <laughs> i was like what are you into i can recommend you a horror film <laughs> so mm. yeah it is kind of nice being that and I, I do revel in it quite a lot i'm not gonna lie um so let's get into this episode's topic which you came to me about i've been very generous with my guests recently and i'm I'm letting them letting them pick their own topics i don't know i think i've softened in my old age um so we are discussing david cronenberg now why did you want to discuss david cronenberg uh well a couple of reasons he's 80 years younger this year uh, oh my lord not, yeah he's been knocking around for quite a while and he's been he's been making movies for 60 i mean we would be um aware of him from sort of i guess shivers onwards that that sort of a period um from when he went from pure kind of schlocky body horror stuff all the way up to this sort of dark contemporary phase and and now back to body horror again but uh, yeah, he's been making movies for about 60 years and he was a jobbing director for a long time before he hit that sort of uh, purple patch from the, the late 70s through to, um, I suppose, 91 uh, and thereafter, uh, kind of the period we're, we're sort of interested in. And, you know, half his movies, the reason I came to you talking about um, uh, adaptations in particular is because he's he very often came out and said, "Look, I'm a lazy writer. I've got I've got ideas, but I'm a lazy writer," and that kind of explains why half his output has been remakes or adaptations or things like that. Uh, and you know, oddly enough, his own films, his own ideas, they're not tremendous money makers. But when he does make money, like say with The Fly or History of Violence. Uh, or something like that he makes a lot of money and that means that you know he I imagine he gets quite a bit of latitude Uh, and it was sort of off the back of one of those remakes being the the fly in what 86 was it 86 Mm -hmm. 88 um that he was given an awful lot of latitude to go and make naked lunch Mm -hmm. uh which we'll which we'll talk about and then you know he had his time in the wilderness you know, go go stand in the corner, David, and think about what you just did. <laughs> uh, and then he came back with uh with Crash in '96. And the reason I pitched you to to look at Naked Lunch and, and Crash mm. is that they were both by writers that history has treated in very different ways. Even though both books were considered you know countercultural, uh, obscene, um gave the censors an awful lot of uh, a lot an awful lot of material to mull over uh, and caused great uh, consternation and controversy in the literary and genre communities you kind of look at naked lunch now and 
you know, you can't look at the work of William S. Burroughs without looking at the man. And the man has been dead mm-hmm. a long time now. Uh, and sort of look back and you go, you know, it was the beat culture. It was the 1950s. It was what it was. And that's done now. And we can look back at that and go, well, do you know what? He was a man of his time. If he was to try publishing a book like that these days, no, uh, for various reasons. But if you look at J.G. Ballard, at the time he put out Crash, a very similar response, a similar consternation, similar you know controversy. Film comes out very similar level of heated debate. Uh, in, as a, a, an interesting aside, uh, I looked up the Siskel and Ebert reviews for both films and their reaction was pretty much identical. It was like, mm. it's really well made. I hated it. <laughs> it's repellent. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? That's that's Cronenberg mm. all over. He yeah. makes really competent films that make you feel a bit icky. Yeah, definitely. I so I am a complete Cronenberg novice. I'm not gonna lie. He up until perhaps I started this podcast, he was very much a blind spot of mine. Um, and it's pretty much only through this podcast that people, you know, I covered a uh, Videodrome, um, and um, I haven't covered The Fly yet, or have I? I can't remember. I've done so many films. I don't. I haven't covered The Fly yet. I don't think. Maybe I have. But I know that The Fly was the first Cronenberg film I watched during uh, lockdown. And I did, you know, people were doing the watch-alongs with their friends. um, And we watched The Fly. And it was one of the very few films that has ever made me feel physically sick. Um, Mm. Just the goopiness of it. Like it just... Um, So yeah, I've seen seen, um, uh, Shivers. I did that for the podcast. Seen Videodrome. and I've seen Crimes of the Future, his his most recent one. But other than that, like, and then when you came to me and I was like, okay, this is, you know, it's a good excuse for me to carry on this Cronenberg education of mine. But neither of these films were what, like, I didn't expect either of these films. They felt very, to me, what I'd already seen of Cronenberg, very un-Cronenberg, but then obviously reading about them, I'm like, no, that is that is very Cronenberg because, yeah, especially Crash. I felt Crash was um, I'm used to sticky, gross Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sticky in a different kind of way. But yeah, so I find him quite an interesting director and filmmaker. And it's definitely wanting me to go back through his mm-hmm. his back catalogue and check but out more. For me, there's a nihilism in his films. I mean, most um horror films they're they're a jolly they're a fairy tale you get it you get a few scares you you get the boogeyman um nine times out of ten he's defeated with a with with an option to come back depending on financial performance and it's all it's all great fun with a film like videodrome with something like dead ringers you know um these are films without a moral core i mean with uh, a lot of Cronenberg's films, there isn't that conservative moral core to them. Um, you know, there's no redemption at the end of Videodrome. Mm. Um, things just get worse and worse and worse. Um, yeah. You know, there's no redemption in the Fly. Uh, once you know Brundlefly kicks in, that's that's it. You know, yeah. there's they're anti-redemptive, and they leave you kind of cold because 
you don't know what you're going to get by the end of it. You know, mm. like you ser- you certainly feel shaken. I mean, if, you know, in the case of, you know, shivers, it's like, what's what's the resolution? Mm. Everybody has gone mad. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I quite I quite like that. I like I mean, I like nihilistic films and I like I don't tend to like happy endings. Um, mm. Like sometimes they're fine. But most of the time I'm like, you know, real life's not like that. So why, mm. you know, um, I'm, ju- I'm just a terribly grim person, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's. And yet his I- films are very grim. And yeah. that's that's why when he started doing contemporary dramas, people were like, hang on, this is the body horror guy. You know, why would he do this? But if you look at the the moral string that carries through from his body horror films into his contemporary films, you know, there's that same kind of aesthetic there. He very often works with the same people because, you know, he has a, a dynamic that he wants to represent. And, you know, when you've seen a Cronenberg film, you know, because, you know, he wants to make you feel that he wants to make you think as well. And there's a danger in that, um, which I think is, you know, the older I get, the more engaged I find by his films, you know, the prospect of having to sit down and be repulsed by something but have to figure out like yeah but why Mm, yeah that's that's quite a challenge and I think uh, I think as a filmmaker history will judge him really kindly because if you look sometimes we talk about you know elevated horror is a is a term I've come across I mean Cronenberg is the godfather of elevated horror you know you could be as smart as you like I mean Nobody else has made a film like Videodrome. And who would be able to and who would want to? Mm, Yeah, definitely. And I find, I mean, I would have said that he was, you know, if we're talking about that term, elevated horror, a lot of the time it's said a lot about quite pretentious films, but I find him quite unpretentious apart from maybe one of the films we're talking about today. But I think that might be just because I didn't fucking get it. And that might be like, <laughs> I just didn't fucking get it. Um, I'm going to be completely honest. It makes me sound like an idiot. But like most of the most of the stuff that I've seen, I feel like it's very unpretentious, mm. um, yeah. which I appreciate. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he's actually a very humble man. He's quite, quite a funny man. Um very deliberate and understands you know his link to horror and the schlock and all that sort of thing like he had that wonderful role in Nightbreed where he played a serial killer you know he he is a very distinctive looking man very tall very severe looking um and you just get the sense that yeah okay but he's probably great fun as well you know uh and that's that nice balance about the man that you know you could sit down and talk about Sartre or existentialism or you know, Camus or anything, uh, and he'd have his opinions, and you'd be incredibly, um, uh, incredibly well informed by the end of it. Maybe slightly confused, but you've probably had a good laugh while you've been doing it as well. Yeah, because you sent me a few interviews um, with him talking about these films specifically, and even when he's like talking about things, he's very intelligent, and knows mm. what he's talking about, and knows his material, and knows you know the subtext going into it. But he do- it doesn't seem like he's one of those directors that you're like, oh, do you ever shut the fuck up? Like, you know, no one gives mm. a crap. It's actually someone that you want to learn from. Um, so, yeah, it definitely it, it piques my interest in more of his material. Um, so let's let's try and start 
with this first one. I gave you the fantastic task of being like, you're going to introduce this film. Um, yeah. Let's start with the film you chose. Would you like to introduce it and give us a brief synopsis, please? Uh, yeah. If well, you can, I mean, if you can. If, if I can, I can tell you kind of what happens. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Okay, look, full disclosure, if, if anyone has, you know, wants to, go and explain to their parents what a horror film is this is not the episode for for absolutely not for it. Um, uh, okay naked lunch william lee i am your case officer you are my agent i in turn report to your controller your wife is not really your wife she is an agent of interzone incorporated you must kill her were you this morning? I uh, got on a bit of a jam. They're saying that you escaped from custody and murdered your wife, and and they want you. You're just gonna have to leave town. And Interzone is the only place that will have a shady character like you at such short notice. would never have expected to see you up and out so early you seem to be in a lot of pain um right the first of of two difficult literary adaptations and i think if there was something you had to hold over the screen and explaining what we're talking about is this wonderful quote from cronenberg where he said you have to be prepared to betray the book in order to be faithful to it and that is the absolute essence of both of these movies but more so for Naked Lunch because in order to enjoy Naked Lunch and I have to say it's a film I do enjoy I've seen it a few times now and uh, each time I see it I, I, I enjoy it more for its for its craziness for its um the sheer how of it <laughs> how why when who <laughs> all yeah. of the questions all of the all questions of, all of the above and you have to understand the man that is William Burroughs before you can begin to enjoy the film that is Naked Lunch. Mm -hmm. If you don't know one, you're going to be completely lost with the other. And that's not really a failing of the movie because, you know, the in order to understand what's happening in the movie, you have to throw the book away. Like if you were to go into Naked Lunch going, oh, I wonder what he's going to do with this scene or that scene or, or whatever. No, it's not that kind of book. Mm -hmm. The book is kind of a grab bag of scenes, um, most of which, come on, that's, you know, they're, they're orgy scenes. Um, and, you know, Burroughs himself has said he has never written unless, you know, he's been drunk or high. You know, that's just his process. And the things you associate with William Burroughs are, you know, drug abuse, the counterculture uh, of the 50s. He was a, a peer of Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. And, uh, you know, the fact that he he killed his wife um, mm -hmm. by playing William Tell. Um, and uh, a, an event that set him on the path to becoming a writer. Mm -hmm. um, he said, you know, that's that's what started me off as a writer to deal with sort of the depression and the guilt from um having having killed his wife so 
you have to understand that this was a man on a journey and he also was effectively a science fiction writer, uh, a writer of sort of pulp science fiction. Uh, but he undercut himself by being stoned and also using this uh, cut up technique, which was pioneered by another writer called Brian Geisen. And basically they typed out everything on the on the page and they would cut things out line by line and reassemble them into a, into a, a different page. And it, me it means that as a reader, you read it and there's no sense of linearity to it whatsoever. You know, every scene is flat and all you're left with is the sense of what, what's going on. You know, you, you read it and you're like, I have no idea what's going on, but it makes me feel X. Mm. And that's very much the essence of Naked Lunch, the movie. It's a film that is sort of set out to give you that feeling of dislocation, of confusion, um, while staying true to the, the life story uh, of William Burroughs. And, uh, you know, the look of the man, Peter Weller's performance is mm. absolutely spectacular. And this is a man that was coming off Robocop. You know, a, a role that required him to be, you know, quite po-faced. Uh, going to William uh, Sporrows, a role that requires him to be completely po-faced. <laughs> it's it's actually harder to do than Robocop in in some ways, um, because he speaks very slowly, very deliberately, while he tries to take in everything that that's going on. And while that is happening, you know, the film continues as this grab bag of everything that is William Burroughs by referencing his novels, uh, Junkie, mm -hmm. his novel Exterminator, um, you know, where uh, it's a story about a guy who's a, a pest controller who gets high off his own, um, uh, his own dust. I mean, you might remember the song Bug Powder Dust from the 90s. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. That's where it came from. Um, so this is this is Naked Lunch. It's a series of elements. So I suppose, should I should I have a stab at explaining what happens? Go for it. Good luck. OK, Naked Lunch starts with uh, William S. Burroughs, who in the film is actually called Bill Lee. And this is uh, a reference to his nickname that Jack Howarack gave him, uh, which was old Bill Lee in the um in Jack Kerouac's novels, he was famous for giving people nicknames for, for their own inserts. But anyway, so Bill Lee is an exterminator and he starts noticing that the uh, powder that he's using in his job is, you know, he's running through it at, at a fairly strange rate. He's, he's going through an awful lot of it very quickly. And he discovers that his wife has actually been using it now uh, to get high. Uh, which is, you know, it's annoying him because he has to go back to work all the time and go, I, I need more stuff. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, uh, are you eating it or something? And he's like, no, look, can you just give me stuff? And he gets stick and work and he gets picked up by the cops, by two narcs who uh, bring him in for questioning. And they're like, so uh, and they pour out his bug uh, dust on the desk. And he is like, uh, you know, what's what's this stuff here? Is this some sort of, you know, narcotic? And he's like, no, I needed to do my work. Just, you know, completely deadpan, that wonderful, you know, completely you know, lacking any emotion whatsoever. Uh, and 
the cops are like, well, look, OK, we're just going to leave you here for, for a moment. OK, uh, you have a think about what you've done. Uh, he hasn't done anything, but OK. And as the cops leave, one of them brings out a box and puts it on the table. They open the box and out comes this beetle, a beetle with what looks on the front to be like a typewriter. Mm. And the beetle starts rolling around in the dust on the uh, on the table and the beetle's carapace opens to reveal something that looks quite a lot like an anus uh, through which it, it talks. And he says, uh, look, um, my name is Clark Nova. I'm your I'm your caseworker. Uh, I report to, you know, a controller. And look, I've got a job for you. You're my agent. I've got a job for you. And he's like, okay, right. What have I got to do? Your wife is not your wife. She's an agent of the of Interzone Incorporated, which is based in Interzone in North Africa, which is a, a free Porsche. It is a hive of scum and villainy, the likes of which you will never see anywhere else. Uh, so look, we can't have her around. You've just got to kill her. Uh, and you've got to let us know uh, how it was done, that it was done, everything. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to kill my wife. And he's like, look, you think about it. Um, and this is to cut cut things fairly short. So he goes home uh, and he's on the verge of just saying, walking in the door and going, you will never guess what happened to me today in work. He comes in and he finds his two literary buddies are having a, a little bit of a uh, a moment with his wife. And he's like, OK, right. So um, his wife sort of tries to explain what's going on. She's like, look, you can't trust me. I'm a junkie, et cetera, et cetera. They have a game of William Tell. He ends up shooting her in the head and killing her. This actually happened. Mm -hmm. um, and this sort of sets him on the, the literary path in sort of real life. In the film, it sends him on a literary path in that he has to type up a report for Clark Nova, his, you know, his uh, caseworker, right? And everything that happens in the film comes in this sort of set of challenges that something has happened. You've got to write up a report for Clark Nova, uh, on Clark Nova, if if you will. Um, so in order to get, get away from New York uh, and the, the fuzz, the heat, he ends up going to Interzone. And um, he goes through a series of meetings with very random people. Uh, he discovers an alternative drug to the bug powder that uh, he'd been using, uh, which is made up of ground up bug meat. And he also comes into contact with uh, creatures called mugwumps, mm -hmm. who are kind of do you remember in the 80s, Ridley Scott did this ad about the evolved smoker? It was like the smoker of the future. And it was like, OK, here's what somebody who was built on a biological level to smoke looks like. They've got an elongated middle finger. They've got extra capacity in their lungs. You know, it's it's just a horrific image. Well, a mugwump is a perfect genetically engineered junkie who looks suspiciously like William Burroughs in <laughs> lizard form. And uh, he also has sort of um, protrusions from his head that um, uh, secrete fluid. 
take from that what you will and uh eh. <laughs> <laughs> there's a further series of um sort of uh encounters if you will mm -hmm. after each one the challenge is okay write it up send a report write it up send the report and uh bill goes through periods of yes he's actually producing reports no he's not um he's given the challenge uh in interzone of seducing uh the wife of a writer there uh and in order to do so he oh goodness how can i describe what happens in this film you can't most how of it is I indescribable it is indescribable. Like I took <laughs> copious notes, and you know, please leave this in because there is no, <laughs> there is no way around uh, naked lunch other than to say it is a series of interactions with people that get progressively stranger and stranger, linked together by various kinds of drug. Mm. At one point, towards the end of the movie, um, Hank and Martin uh, come over. Uh, to Interzone and they meet Bill and they're like hey this book that you've been writing we're going to get a publisher for it and he says I've been writing a book uh, yeah you've you've been writing a book we've we've got pages and it, you know clearly this is the reports that he's been pushing together that he's been writing that they've been getting that you know is going to become a book called Naked Lunch and it's going to be published so there's no understanding what is actually happening in this film without appreciating that the man who's in it is on very hard drugs all the way through. And all it is, is there's no causal link from one scene to the next. There is just a series of encounters, a series of challenges, but nothing is, you know, and then, and then. Mm. You could almost chop this film up and watch it in any order you like which would be very like a William Burroughs novel because no scene seems to have a causal link to the next. It just has a flow. And I think that's something it has in common with Crash as well. But in Naked Lunch, the nature of the scenes are so bizarre that the only thing that will link one to the other is here's a character you're meeting in scene five. You'll see him again in scene eight. So you're like, oh, okay, right. I know this guy. Uh, and they go and do something and it invariably ends in Lee being confused or trying to escape uh, or falling asleep. Mm. You know? And this is, you know, this is the denizens of Interzone. It's a hive of struggling writers of, you know, deviance, sexual deviance. Again, it's the 1950s. So it's a it's a film of its time. Uh, and of course, junkies who are experimenting with different kinds of drug. Ultimately, at the end, it becomes about Lee trying to regain his wife mm -hmm. um, through sort of finding this woman that is possibly a clone, possibly a centipede, uh, <laughs> possibly an alien. But he identifies her as, you know, this is the woman that I basically killed that got me started on my road and she's here and she's alive. Um, and uh, ultimately, he does win her. Uh, I won't I can't explain the way in which he does because I'd be on a sofa explaining it to a therapist mm. <laughs> um, and in the end in this actually wonderful last scene 
he is sent to a country called Anexia, which is effectively somewhere in Eastern Europe. And he's stood there at a border crossing and the border guards ask him, you know, what do you do? And he says, well, I'm a, I'm a writer. Uh, and they're like, prove it. And, uh, you know, at the risk of being spoilerific, but to be honest, you don't watch Naked Lunch for spoilers. Um, they're like, okay, prove you're a writer. And uh, he takes out his gun, pistol that he's been carrying. And he looks in the back of the van that he's been traveling in. And uh, the woman that, you know, kind of is his wife, Joan, is, uh, is still there. And he shoots her in the head. Because that's his journey as a writer. Mm. That's what gets him going again. That you Look, you want proof that I'm a writer? I did this. Mm-hmm. And it led to this book called Naked Lunch um, being written. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the movie. There is no narrative through line as such. It's very much he kills his wife. He escapes. He finds someone that is an awful lot like his wife. And he escapes with her. And the exact same thing happens in another country that forced him to escape from New York in the first place. Does does that start to make sense now about what happens in Naked Lunch? To me, it does. So when I, I literally watched this like two hours ago or whatever, finished it two hours ago, and um, I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? Mm. Like, what the fuck is going on? I had no clue what was going on. Yeah. Um, and it just, <laughs> it's just bizarre. It's such a bizarre film. Um, but thinking about it now and about you know he he has to go through these things and uh William Burr as a person as well I get like I get it um you know I I used to be a musician and it was very emo music I'm not gonna lie and it's funny because last night I was out with friends and one of my friends says, have you written any music recently and I'm like no I haven't written anything and it's because I mean don't get me wrong like I'm I still have my mental health problems but I'm not like pained and tormented as I was when I was writing music. You know, I'm in a lovely, stable relationship. I've got a lovely little family. And it's just like, it's so funny how that area of my creativity has almost died because I'm not in that sort of that sort of mindset anymore. Mm. I'm not in that tortured, pained mindset. Um and it's it's this is what I see reflected in Naked Lunch, that for him to be a creative, for him to be a writer, he has to be in some sort of pain, confusion, um, intoxication. And even when he he is happy and when he thinks like I've got my wife now, but I have to sacrifice my creative writing, you know, do I have to self-destruct? And to destroy everything in my life for me to be able to write. And I think when it comes to creatives, that's a really sad thing. That sometimes Mm. to be creative and to write things and create things that people can relate to, you have to be miserable yourself. Um, And that's really sad. It is the ultimate discussion. And (laughs) it's done to great comedic effect in uh, Bullets Over Broadway, actually. But it's it's very, what do you love? The artist or the man? You know? Mm. For Burroughs, the two were inseparable. Everything that he wrote on some level was autobiographical. You know, he couldn't write 
a book about exterminator about you know a man who gets high off his own um bugs bug powder supply because you know his understanding of drugs was completely based in you know his his own experience he couldn't speculate uh he had to work he had to reverse engineer it he had to be like okay well what other kind of drug could i sort of dream up that that would do this you know um and it's sort of the cut up technique again it does create this disorienting effect that it's very hard to to replicate on screen and the soundtrack is absolutely fantastic it's mm. just this sort of confusing free jazz that you know you you can hear it from the era you imagine the 1950s sitting in a club people are clicking their fingers mm-hmm. because you know somebody has said something and it's it's so right man um I, you know it's it's just that ambiance that sense of place that sense of confusion and peter weller's deadpan expression mm-hmm. and you know points at which things that are you know very human emotions um like being physically attracted to someone take on physical form and very, mm. very odd physical forms as well there's one scene with judy davis and peter weller where he's gone to visit her in her apartment and they start using a typewriter uh, together and all of a sudden the typing that they're doing together becomes a metaphor for something else the mm. typewriter physically transforms into something else um i'm not even entirely sure what kind of creature you'd call it you'd call it a sex creature that that's probably it um which is sort of hurried off when Mm. uh, the housekeeper arrives who becomes another an entirely other thing as well but you know we could we could sit here for a long time just going then this happens but you know it would only be a then this happens it wouldn't be a, and then this happens, mm. you know, there's nothing causal going on here. All it's just things are thrown at Burroughs, at, at Lee for him to respond to. And, you know, in the nineties, Burroughs did become this sort of high priest of drug addicts and Naked Lunch, the film, I think must have been a huge part of that. I mean, mm. in drugstore cowboy, he played uh, a priest that was a heroin addict uh perfect role for him you know and you know in the 90s he did become uh this sort of reclaimed countercultural icon mm-hmm. um he'd kind of uh, i imagine the book being so difficult to find because it, it ended up on the wrong side of censors you know across the world it was published by a small french press initially and uh, i think it was 59 it came out but again i mean it's 91 by the time it actually gets committed to film. And even then, Cronenberg said, look, if you were to make this literally, it would cost $400 million and it would be incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. And completely right. I mean, I have tried my damnedest to, <laughs> to explain what goes on. And I, I, I think that's the only way you can look at it, to think of it as this sort of uh, confusion that is created mm. by this since by this succession of scenes strung together by this man's attempt to use to self-medicate as a means to deal with the grief mm. of losing his wife that you know there is actually a realistic emotional core to this film but it's almost like it, Cronenberg throws things at you all the time to try and throw you off the case 
Mm. You know, everything becomes a red herring. It's like, yeah, do you know what? Mugwumps do secrete this stuff that is basically heroin that you drink mm. out of their skull. Or yes, a key a typewriter can become a sentient thing. Uh, yes, you know, typewriters can look like keyboards that speak out of anuses under their car carapaces. Yes, all of these things are possible. Yes, you can put a jazz soundtrack to it. Yes, you can have Saul Bass looking credits at the front with mismatched fonts. But at the end of it, first time I saw it, I was like, what the hell was this? Mm. Second time I saw it, I, I appreciated it as a film because I had actually learned quite a bit more about William Burroughs in the interim. He's since become one of my favorite writers, actually. Um, and that's even, you know, probably despite the man's best efforts, to be honest, I mean, if, you, if you read a few of his books, they recycle that cut up technique. Mm. So you you really you read them and you're like, there is a wonderful idea in here. And I've seen ideas of his ripped off in places like, you know, mm -hmm. True Detective, uh, where you have a character that could have been Burroughs himself, you know, because Burroughs actually was PI at, at one point, which might explain why he's always dressed as sort of a G-man in, in all his um, famous photos and, and in the film, mm -hmm. you know, that his ideas have proliferated, but it's because he's kind of impenetrable that he he does come across as being sort of a, a little bit seedy. Um, mm. He's he's hard to like, but he's easy to appreciate. I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? I mean, you just watched it. Did you, did you come away and go, there's something going on here. I just don't know what it is. Yeah, that was basically like I was thinking of like, OK, I'll log this on Letterboxd later. And I'm like, I don't even know what rating I'd give it because I'm just like, I watched it. I can appreciate it for being this surrealist fever dream. You know, I can almost imagine a creative lying awake at night and thinking about all their problems and then falling asleep. And this is the dream they have. Mm. Um, but I, I don't think I liked it. I don't think I liked the film. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's a wonderful analogy uh, you've made there to say it's like a dream because very often you wake up and you forget what you've dreamt. And that's kind of what Naked Lunch, the film is in comparison to Naked Lunch, the book. If the book was to have a dream, it would be the film. Mm, yeah, I will say, though, the images and especially of that butt bug is just <laughs> that is seared into my brain. Like that's yeah. I can almost guarantee that's what I'm going to dream about tonight. Butt bugs. Yeah. yeah. Butt bugs. So I'll give it that. I will. And it was it's so funny because like like you said, like the soul bass kind of I was like, this is a little bit Hitchcock, you know, with the the jazz mm. and the the credits and almost like this neo-noir kind of start. And mm. and then it just descends into depths of like weirdness. Um yeah. so I, I will give it that. It's a bit of a whiplash when you think it's gonna it be something is. and then it's and it, not. It, it really takes a conversation like this to tease it out. Mm. And to go, oh, right, OK, the, this is what it's about. And it makes sense. It's just through this fog that, you know, is just put in front of you. You yeah. know, the, just this hallucinogen, uh, this mm -hmm. hallucinogenic substance that you have somehow taken in through your eyeballs, this mind virus like Videodrome. <laughs> yeah. He's he's all about his viruses, isn't he? He likes he mm. likes his elder viruses. Um, 
So would you recommend Naked Lunch to horror fans? To horror fans? Hmm. Huh. This is this is a really good question because uh, to both to both our films, really, uh, of the two that we're talking about, Naked Lunch is the closest visually to a horror film, mm-hmm. um, you know, but in terms of narrative, definitely not mm. um, because it's not it's not looking. Well, the things that it does tie up, it took us having a conversation about to figure it out. Mm. Um, and there are a few uh, scenes that are really unforgettable. And um, that are really, I think Stephen Dupuis was the um, uh, chief makeup artist and the mm. work he does on this is absolutely stellar. Mm. That there are visuals in there that will stick with you. Mm. Um, but perhaps in the, I would say if you are a fan of HP Lovecraft, mm-hmm. you would probably enjoy this movie. You know, uh, if you if you like the weird and don't necessarily want to impose a structure on it. Uh, I mean, Cronenberg, Cronenberg was stuck with this with this problem. You know, he had a book that elicited certain emotions. How do you turn that into a film? Uh, and he had conversations with Burroughs over this uh, and ultimately got the man's blessing mm-hmm. to um, try and make it in some way um, recognizable as a as a film, because he still had to go to backers and go, you know, mm. um, yeah. That wonderful fly film I made, I can totes make you more money. <laughs> <laughs> so I think on a on a sixteen million dollar budget, I think it made back like two million dollars. Like this did not do well. Um, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and it did kind of it did lead to his wilderness years, in my mm. opinion. Mm. But would I recommend it for someone like myself that likes you know cult movies that has an interest in mm. literature? Um, I think that's probably the audience for a genre audience. I think you would probably struggle. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, it would have to be a certain person I was recommending it to. Mm. It definitely wouldn't be the, you know, like the general horror community population that I'd be like, you know what you need to watch. Mm. Um, But yeah, it'd be a very, a, a very precise kind of, character that i would recommend this film to maybe if i wanted to confuse people i do have this habit of like recommending films just to see people's reactions so yeah oh that would be we've my all answer. had those moments <laughs> okay so let's move on to the next one who i was like i'm gonna i kind of want to introduce this one because i understand this one um <laughs> this is 1996's crash <laughs> Crash victim? Yes. There seem to be three times as many cars as there were before the accident. I need to see you, Ballard. I need to talk to you about the project. <laughs> Beyond pleasure. Beyond pain. Beyond obsession. Lies the rapture and the rage of Crash. Um, which is based on the J.G. Ballard 1973 novel. Uh, it stars James Spader as uh, this, this guy um, called James Ballard. 
And he is in this open marriage and him and his wife are very detached. They're very cold. They don't really derive any pleasure from their marriage or their extramarital affairs. Um, And then one day he loses control of his car and he is in a car crash that causes um, a man to fly through the windscreen and die. And through this, he meets that man's wife, um, Dr. Helen. And through Helen, he kind of um, develops this fetish for car crashes and she introduced him to this guy called Vaughn who is part of a almost like a performance group of car crashes and you know he's part of this almost like an artist troupe of people that have the same sort of interest and and and, and sexual fetish when it comes to car crashes um and that's pretty much it and then from this uh James gets his wife involved on it and it's just I mean it's a little bit more linear ish than Naked Lunch but even as I'm now trying to describe the plot I'm still like there's really not that much of a plot like it's just like these are some events and then this happens um so yeah again it's another strange one when it comes to plot um yeah it's I like I knew about this film, like I knew what the subject matter was, but I'd never kind of got around to watching it. But it's still it still shocked me. And like not a lot of things shock me nowadays, but I still found it quite shocking. Um what is what's your opinion of Crash? Yeah. Um when I found some of the publicity material for Crash researching this, one of the main posters had up the top in huge words, sex and car crashes. <laughs> And then in small letters, two thirds of the way down the page, crash. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That, I mean, if, if a poster is a contract, that's exactly it. You are getting all of those Mm. in one place. And like Naked Lunch, it is very hard to, uh, to string together a causal line Mm. because there's no reason for much of the stuff that happens in crash to happen. It's just sort of, here's a character, um, here's James. As you said yourself, he's in a he, he's basically sleepwalking his way through an open marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there is, you know, they're unfaithful, but they're clearly a couple looking for something to spark some sense mm-hmm. of intimacy. You know, they're they're trying, but they just can't connect. And the implication is that it's urban life has sort of sapped them of their individuality that they're locked into these daily routines um and they're they're just trying anything to break away from from the norms to break a few taboos Mm. to sort of really find some sort of genuine humanity in them that is just missing like james isn't upset that uh, catherine is having anonymous sex Mm. um she's not upset with him for doing the same thing um it's just what are you doing? Oh, well, I was with some guy today. Mm. How did it go? Yeah. <laughs> How was that? Yeah. Tell me about it. Um, and that sort of creates the the emotional plane on which this thing happens. So when James gets involved in, in that car crash, it's it's kind of it does jolt you out of your seat because mm. here's something that happens and here's something that's absolutely terrifying. And yet his 
his sort of uh, emotional response is to just stare at Holly Hunter in the car opposite while she opens her blouse and reveals mm-hmm. one of her breasts to him. And it's sort of a, I did not expect that kind mm. of a moment uh, on the audience side anyway. But for, for Ballard, he he just retains this sort of, um, he, he doesn't react, you know, and either it's because he's not terribly conscious or mm-hmm. just he's just confused about everything else that happened, uh, that has happened around him. And as as we've said, it's just, you go further down this, rabbit hole of meeting people that are you know uh obsessed with this sort of car crash fetish where mm. you know uh, ballard himself came out and he said look the car is the metaphor for the self you know mm-hmm. what better way is there to understand someone than by their car you know what type of car is it what's the make the model the year you know in our case you know is it an electric car? Well, they're probably one of those hippies that wants to save the environment. <laughs> all this kind of thing. You know, you make all sorts of assumptions about people by the car they drive. So if something happens to to somebody's car, well, what? why did it happen? You know, were they negligent? Was mm-hmm. it something they were interested in? You know, uh, there's so many things that can go wrong. So Vaughn is a re- very interesting character because he's sort of the, the instigator in all of this. You know, he's the man with the plan. Uh, kind of the fulcrum of the film is a recreation mm-hmm. of the accident that killed James Dean, um, which is, you know, Ballard is there and Holly Hunter, who plays uh, Helen, Re- Helen Remington, uh, brings him to, to you know, as you as you outlined it, um, you know, it, it is a piece of performance art. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like it's not broken up by the police. It's broken up by the traffic department. (laughs) There's no attempt to actually arrest anyone Mm. here or to get in the emergency services or anything just to break up the spectacle. Mm. Just, you know, uh, don't, you know, shine a light on what is actually happening here. So it's it is a very difficult film to talk about, because once Mm. you talk about the key concept, um, as with Naked Lunch, which is why I think the two kind of complement each other very well as adaptations because they have a flow and once you get out the central conceit the flow kind of brings you along to a natural conclusion Mm. and you know that flow in crash involves it's about Catherine it's about Ballard's wife's involvement that she starts at a distance learns more and more and more becomes involved and then decides that oh no this this actually isn't for me. I want nothing to do with this. This is pathological. Mm-hmm. Um, no, thank you. And that's kind of, you know, where you hit the final confrontation in the movie is when Catherine makes the decision that, uh, no, this this isn't for me. And it's probably the one point at which we do see a genuine emotional response out mm-hmm. of Catherine and James as a couple that, you know, they they do reach their limit. Uh, resulting in sort of a, a, a car chase uh, uh, and Vaughn sort of driving off a, 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 a an overpass and into a a, a busload of people uh, killing himself and it's implied you know other people uh, mm. as well. In the end, James and Catherine are just left trying to recreate 
um, this sort of fetish on their own. And, you know, it's it's like, but the thrill has gone. Mm. For a moment, they had something. And then once, you know, their antagonist was gone, once he was dead, once the life of that subculture went, whatever mm. spark that had, you know, been ignited between them as a as a couple, that went too. And it's a very tragic ending. Um, I mean, the last line is, uh, what is it? Um, maybe next time. Maybe next time. And mm. it could be next crash or it could be, mm we've got to find something else yeah. and that will be the next thing. Mm. Yeah. One, I like you, you talked about it holding up very well. And I will say that I think looking at it now from um, a product of, you know, social media and kind of more access to worldwide news and more access to people's lives, whether it's from like the news or whether it's from social media, um, I kind of related Crash to, I think the one thing that disturbed me the most was this lack of like feeling and emotion with the characters. Like they're very, you know, they're very steely faced. There's no emotion. There's no reactions to anything um, apart from like a little bit of excitement when, you know, the crashes kind of happen. Mm. But it's this kind of lack of empathy towards other people's suffering and mm. you know it's just a part of life and you know we're gonna we're gonna look in and we're gonna be voyeurs on these people's like tragic lives but we don't care too much because we can detach ourselves whether it's through a screen or you know we can walk away or whatever so I really I, I found that that kind of struck me a lot especially with everything that's been going on especially with you know when we look at like celebrity lives and I guess that's reflected when he does talk about James Dean and Jane Mansfield mm. about these celebrities like it's almost like we don't treat them like real people um you know they're just like these people to watch and then there's tragedy and we're like oh well <laughs> let's move mm. on um so that really struck me about Crash and how I can relate it to today yeah there's a wonderful juxtaposition um between the first scene uh where you're behind the wheel of a car and then it's pulled away to reveal a film set. Yeah. And at the two thirds, well, at the two thirds mark ish, they're at a crime scene. Vaughn and James and Catherine are driving through a crime scene and it's laid out almost like a set mm. and they're just walking around and, you know, they're taking photos and everything is so mannered and quiet mm. and you know people they're not screaming in pain or anything like that um you know there there's nobody screaming you know we gotta get somebody in, in the ambulance mm. we gotta go it's so quiet you know it's it's almost you know there's a reverential hush mm. descending over this scene and it is like quiet on set you know there's something happening here mm. um I think that's that's something that uh, really makes this film stand out. And mm. another, you know, on a much lighter note, when Cronenberg uh, was making this film, mm. he had to employ an entire fleet of stunt car drivers who are mm. used to doing action movies. And when you think about it, this is not an action movie. No. There's an awful lot of driving in it, but mm. you think, 
actually, yeah, he did have to treat this like an action movie, like, you know, he was making Baby Driver or something like yeah. that. Uh, or, you know, what was that brilliant film, The Driver with Ryan, um, um, the guy from the 70s. Yeah, come, <laughs> come to me at a later date. But uh, yeah, he was he basically had to have all the equipment for making a chase movie, uh, although he was making films, uh, making a film where people kind of drive slightly recklessly, yeah. uh, but not that fast, I suppose, in the big scheme of things. Yeah. Another thing that struck me that there was, I mean, he said this as well, that like, you know, his assistant director was like, I have hundreds of extras. And he's like, I don't need them. <laughs> Get rid mm. of them. And it's that lack of um, outside influence and outside mm. reaction as well you know there's a few scenes where um himself and dr helen are having sex in like an airport car park and she's like it won't be busy at this time of day but there's people going back and forth around mm. them but there's no reaction and even you know they go mm. and pick up a sex worker and they're having sex in the back of the car driving down a highway and cars are going past them there's no reaction mm. and it was yeah. that lack of reaction that like I say, it shocked me. And I think that was that was what kind of shocked me and disturbed me the most was that lack of outside reaction. For It was, you know what it is, that and their lack of feelings and their lack of reaction to normal things. Like if you, you know, like if you were driving your mate and your wife in a car and all of a sudden they started, you know, having sex in a car wash, you'd be like, eh, hang on a minute, mate. Like, you know, um, yeah, it was that lack of reaction that I found really uncanny. Mm. And I think that's something that David Cronenberg does quite well as well with Naked Lunch. I mean, that is just wild. But even in the beginning where you're not sure where it's going to go, there's still that lack of reaction, that lack of feeling. And it's like, okay, I'm seeing these humans and these people, but they're not having human or person feelings they're not expressing mm. these in a way that we would find natural or normal and it's that uncanniness that made me feel really kind of like just kind of slightly disturbed i think with crash yeah there is there is one concession to uh old school cronenbergian body horror as well uh in the scene with uh, patricia arquette uh, mm. who wears a very elaborate um uh body brace. brace yeah yeah uh, which is, you know, it, it effectively looks like a very elaborate bondage device. Mm. Um, and she has a, a scar on the back of one of her thighs, a, a very large gash, which, uh, uh, as it turns out, is an erogenous zone uh, or has become an erogenous zone. Um, and that's very, that's very Cronenberg, mm. you know. It's, yeah. uh, and the same thing happens with uh, Vaughn's scars on his body. He has lots of scars. Uh but um, we discover they are all incredibly sensitive, uh, and you know it's it's quite um, it's quite pleasurable to uh, mm -hmm. to to be touched. So uh, there is there is a hint of old old school Cronenberg in there. Um, there there are sort of one or two signature points, mm -hmm. um, but it is kind of its own thing. It is that emotional detachment that I think does catch people off guard. Mm. Like you have uh, Catherine and James. How many scenes are they actually looking at each other's mm. faces? Yeah. They're very often looking in the same direction, looking at the same things, talking about the same things, but there's no connection. between. Yeah, them. yeah you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just that lack of connection 
between any of the humans. I was just like, this is it's weird. It makes me feel a bit. And even like when you're talking about the scars, the scars don't look like human scars. You know, there's no mm. like, you know, there's there's very little blood in this film for a film that's really about car crashes. You know, there's a few really gory bits, but like their scars don't look like scars. But, mm. you know, we know they are scars. Um, and it's just like, you know, when you talk about that amalgamation of person and car, it's like these people are machines and they're cold and they're sterile and they could have been made in a factory. You know, there's there's very little that's natural about them. Mm. Um, and yeah, I just, yeah, I find this film quite bizarre, but I, I, I do want to go back to it, I think, at, at some point, you know. I think, I think compelling might mm. be the word for it. Like... It is, in a sense, like a car crash. You can't take your eyes off it. Yeah. You're kind of like, what happened and why? And who are these people? Mm. And what happens to them next? It it It's a film that makes you ask questions about what's, what's going on and uh, about the characters. And it's not, you know, it's not titillatory. I didn't find it. Mm. I mean, for the amount of sex that's in it, you, you see that something will happen and then there'll be a sex scene juxtaposed with it like there'll be you know a particularly nasty piece of action uh and it will be juxtaposed with a sex scene or something like mm. that famously it opens with three sex scenes in a row yeah uh, one with Catherine, one with james and then one together um and you know cronenberg was wondering like will people laugh at this you know will they will they think it's a bit weird will they get it um because it is about their relationship and how do they keep it together uh at the start it's by being promiscuous by the end it's by doing something together Mm -hmm. um but has that thing failed them now you know yeah and it's very much about like the close connection between sex and death as well mm. um i can't remember the fancy freudian names for it but uh Eros and thanatos <laughs> thank you very much um but yeah it's very much about that and how danger and the possibility of death can be exciting for people. you know that's why people jump out of planes and shit like mm. you know do wild stuff like that and I thought that was a very interesting take on this. Because, um, like, this is a real thing. It's like symphorophiliac. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, it's a real thing, apparently. Um, and I think there was another film that was meant to come out that was kind of a bit about this, but I don't think it quite got the back. And I cannot remember who was doing it. Um, but it was quite a similar premise. Um but yeah, I, th I think it's a, an interesting look at the human condition, how these things are so closely related. Um, and I quite like the way how, um, how like people were really offended by this film. Like, mm. wasn't it at Cannes that... Um, yeah, Francis Ford Coppola yeah. uh, basically threw his toys out of the pram uh, over it. I mean, it, it did pick up a special uh, award at Cannes for, I think... Uh, a very vague sounding category as daring like, or uh, something like that. The special jury prize. Special jury prize. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what 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 is that, you know? Um honorable <laughs> mention for the for the festival. Well done. Pat in the back. <laughs> yeah, we can't give you an award because it's a bit too much, but we're gonna say well much, done. <laughs> but we again it's that sort of we appreciate it was well made, mm. but we were repelled. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it it was banned, wasn't it? Was it banned in a few countries? It, it was banned in London, believe it or not. That's right in the West End. It couldn't be played in any cinema in the West End. Yeah. 
uh, the what was it London City Council or something like that said mm. nope you're you're not playing that that film here and <laughs> um, oddly enough for a country that was still quite ban happy in 1996 it was not banned in Ireland mm. but it did have 36 seconds of dialogue cut okay and I think that was a shrewd move on the part of the censor yeah because it was effectively designed to make sure that an uncut version of the film would not arrive on the Irish market. Right. Because say you had three minutes worth of additional footage, right? Yeah. Um, that you wanted to put into a, a director's cut or something like that, right? And you brought it to, you know, the censor over here um, who had said, do, do you know what? We let your film out to market, but we made the following cuts. Do you want to take this gamble of giving us an extra three minutes when you know there's a version on the market that has exactly everything you wanted to show uh, and all we've taken out is dialogue. Yeah. Take your choice. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it didn't come to pass that way. I mean, the version that we have access to in Ireland is, you know, as the director Mm -hmm. intended. Um, But I thought it was a shrewd way to play it. Yeah, just a little bit. Um. So would you recommend Crash to horror fans? Horror fans. This is why Cronenberg is such a fascinating director Mm. that he can make the best horror film to engage, you know, the the happiest gore hound. And yet he can turn around and make films like Naked Lunch, make films like Crash that, you know, are there to make you think, are there to make you question and use some of those same tricks and tropes of body horror, mm-hmm. um, but just flip them in a completely different direction. So would I recommend Crash to horror fans? If you are looking to be grossed out, like, do you remember the film Stuck with Stephen Ray and Minu Savari years ago? It was based on no. a true story about a, a woman who's driving to work and she ran into a pedestrian Mm. And um, he was literally stuck in her uh, in her car. Okay. Right. And she was like, I'm sorry, I got to go to work. I got to park car. I got to go. I'm sorry. Look, if I'm late, I will lose my job. I can't afford to lose my job. You're just going to have to wait here. And she left him. Based on a true story directed by Stuart Gordon. Okay. Uh, and did, you know, that was a contemporary film I would recommend to a horror fan mm. because there was this sort of dark humor undercutting it with a, with a smidgen of gore. You know, yeah. um, this has no humor. This is a humorless <laughs> film. You know, there are no nodding winks. These are people that are effectively automatons trying to recreate a semblance of the human experience. Um, I couldn't really recommend it to a to a horror audience. No, I I don't know. I think again, like with Naked Lunch, it'd have to be a certain person. I do find it horrific in some ways. Like it's not like it's not horror. Like mm. it's not you know when you look at this compared to like The Fly. But there is a certain amount of body horror to it, um, and I'm not talking about just just the gore when it comes to like the crashes or whatever but it's the body horror of how the body reacts to certain situations and that sort of horror you know why why is their body reacting in this sort of way to a car crash you know like it's just it, it's yeah it's i think it's that kind of horror um yeah. but yeah i wouldn't 
recommend it to like out and out you know perhaps the the mum group that i was talking to oh i've got a horror mm. for you <laughs> like you know <laughs> you like cars um yeah. well, this is the thing with body horror that makes it very hard to talk about in that with body horror there is a problem but the problem is you mm. who is your antagonist well it's you know it's it's actually you you know james wood's problem in videodrome is james mm. woods um seth brundle's problem in the fly is seth brundle uh, and that's sort of the a hallmark of Cronenberg's films, you know, in yeah. Naked Lunch, Bully is his problem. You know, Billy is the is his own antagonist. Uh, and similarly, James Ballard, you know, but for you know, working through the prism of Vaughn, who isn't, mm-hmm. you know, an antagonist. I mean, you know, he's trying to bring Ballard further and further into this fetish, mm. uh, ultimately, you know, having their own moment, their own tryst. Yeah. Uh, that is sort of the natural culmination of of what's happening. So it, it that is sort of the thing with body horror. You know, there there is no boogeyman. Horrible yeah. things can be happening, but it's you're your own worst enemy. Yeah, exactly. Um. So out of the two of them, then, mm. which if you had if you just had the two of them left, and someone was like, "Well, you you can only keep one or the other," which mm. one would you go for? I th- hmm, that's a really good question because even though they both have similar flow, they they both have that non-causal structure. Uh-huh. So I think in some respects, when you watch them both, you're like, what, you know, shouldn't this be happening? Shouldn't we have an inciting incident now? Shouldn't we, you know, yeah. there's no sense of that sort of Hollywood propulsion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of these films stop when they say they're going to stop. Yeah. And that's it, you know. They, they you have to watch them on their terms effectively on Cronenberg's terms uh which one would I would I prefer in terms of prophecy mm-hmm. um I'd say crash mm-hmm. uh, I think it has aged pretty well I'd say if you were to release it next week if you were to remove the smoking which I thought was hilarious mm. um you you pretty much could could do it. Um, yeah no problems uh with naked lunch i think there would be too much of a gosh people were crazy in the 50s yeah definitely i think for me it's like which one you know i could go without watching naked lunch ever again but i think (laughs) you know like i think i would eventually like to revisit crash um so Mm. i think i'm gonna go with crash (laughs) so yes what do you think is the future i mean I mean, he's 80 now. But what do you think is the future for Cronenberg if he does make more films? Or do you think he's going to leave much of a legacy apart from his son, Brandon Cronenberg? Do you think he's going to leave much of a legacy and influence in the world of filmmaking? Do you know what? It is a tremendously appropriate body horror kind of idea that, you know, Cronenberg Sr. thinks he's getting a bit old, so he peels a piece of himself (laughs) off and calls it, Brandon and sends yeah. it off to make body horror movies because uh, I mean antiviral is a fantastic film mm. and you watch it and you're like are you sure your dad didn't write that yeah come on it's it is brilliant um at this stage I mean maybe Cronenberg the Elder will will do something like you know he might go back and do some schlock he might be like mm. 
like, I'll, I'll have some fun. You know, he's done M. Butterfly. He's done A History of Violence. He's done Cosmopolis and Maps to the Stars, uh, which I found tough, tough going. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there really is only two directions uh, and they're very, very different. Mm-hmm. I think I, I would like to see another straight ahead body horror film just just to see the man have a bit more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when we think about like recently there's been a thing about aging bodies in horror mm. and how they're depicted. And I think, you know, him being an aging person in Hollywood. And I think his point of view on that subject might be really cool and mm. really like just interesting and something perhaps we haven't seen before. You know, it's really hard to do something in horror now that we haven't seen before. But I really think that Cronenberg on that subject matter could do something brilliantly about it. Um, yeah. So and in, yeah reading, that... in reading up about the man, I mean, he's a thinker. Mm. And that's what can bring you back to his films. You know, very like, like in rewatching Naked Lunch, I was like, this is a very unpleasant film. But then rewatching it back, I said, oh, actually... Yeah, the bits fit together, mm. even though it doesn't have, you know, a strong narrative linking one thing to the to the next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So thank you so much for coming on and chatting about these two Cronenberg book adaptations. Um. Before we go, I was asked my guest, what is your favorite horror film? I am going to be so basic and <laughs> uh, I'm going to say, um, well, am I? Yeah, I, I'll be basic to okay. Evil Dead 2. Okay, right. That's what, fine, yeah. <laughs> what a perfect little movie. What a perfect uh, amalgam of jump scares and Marx Brothers level mm-hmm. comedy. Uh, you know, on the poster when it came out, it said, kiss your nerves goodbye. And it works as a horror film. I think it works as physical comedy as well. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's it's a film I've, come back to many times over the years i'll watch it many times again yeah it's not scary it's just funny yeah yeah my favorite franchise is evil dead so <laughs> <laughs> um so where can people find you on social media yeah sure you can follow me on the tweet machine at niall kitson uh you can also hear tech radio uh every week on uh, your platform of choice be it soundcloud itunes or spotify so that was my chat there with Niall Kitson about these two David Cronenberg literary adaptations. We got Naked Lunch from 1991, as well as Crash from 1996. Um, so do they make any more sense? Does Naked Lunch make any more sense to anyone? Um, I, I struggled. I did. I really struggled with it. I'm not going to lie. Um, but sure, look, let me know what you think. What do you think of these two films? Are you a fan of them? Can you say you're a fan of them? Like, is anybody a big fan of these? Let me know um, on Twitter at what underscore scream, Instagram at what a scream and uh, TikTok at what a scream podcast. <laughs> I almost forgot it there. Um, yeah. And let me know what you think of these. What do you think of David Cronenberg in general? Um, whether you are a fan of his more out there films out there kind of surrealist films or whether you're more of a fan of his straightforward body horror let me know um and don't forget to rate review subscribe on whatever platform you are listening to me on um and don't forget to stay horrific goodbye